what's going on, anesthesia nerds out there in podcast land. Today, I am joined by someone who has more letters after his name than I have ever seen possible. I am joined by Dr. Christopher Norkis, who is not only a CVT, but also a VTS in anesthesia, a VTS in ECC. And after getting those two designations, he decided this is not enough for me. I need to be further in debt. Not only did he not stop at veterinary school, he said, I'm gonna get my specialty in anesthesia. And then after that, he still wasn't satisfied. So he went and got a DACVECC. So if I had to give you all the letters after this man's name, it would be insane. All of the Scrabble words could be made. Then after the DACVECC, he decided this is not good enough. I am also gonna become a certified veterinary pain practitioner which is what he also has. So please welcome to the show. I'm not going to say all the designations, but Dr. Christopher Norgas. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So Dr. Norgas, I wanted to talk to you today because you are working, I mean, you have a, you have a specialty in anesthesia. You also are right. boarded in emergency and critical care. You're probably getting called in on a lot of emergency or critical cases that require anesthesia. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. So, you know, right now I'm in private practice. I practice at VCA, Veterinary Specialist of Connecticut in West Hartford, Connecticut, on the, in the Northeast. And uh, besides having kind of dual roles there, both as an anesthesiologist, I'm also a criticalist there, and I'm also chief of staff. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty busy in my role, and we have a, a fabulous anesthesia team, but I'm always available to help with cases as well, and I'm often called to do so. So... Because you're so experienced in the kind of a more emergency and critical care side of anesthesia, uh, that's what I was hoping that we could right. talk about today. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to do this. We kind of try to do some, you know, make-believe cases here. And yeah. kind of how would you handle that or how would you treat okay. it? And the case that I'd like to go over with you is something that I think is super common that you're seeing it in emergency practices, you're seeing it in GP practices, and that's the urethral obstruction cat. Right. It's so, kind of a kind of a case that everybody sees, whether you're, you know, at a university teaching hospital or you're in a, you know, very rural general practice. Absolutely. Here's what we want to know. Let's say we have a five-year-old male neutered, typical big orange boy come in. He has a urethral obstruction and you need to relieve that obstruction. Um, so can you walk us through kind of from the emergency critical care, but also really from the anesthesia and pain management view, what is going to be the best way to treat this patient? Let's also say that he's pretty uh, spry. He's not a fan of yours. Um, he's going <laughs> to bite you and claw you up if you try to put an IV catheter in him. And I, I may be speaking from experience here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the real key for urethral obstructions is to ensure that they're adequately stable before trying to relieve an obstruction. I think, you know, we um, kind of sometimes rush to get to, you know, the end of the story, if you will, and, and pass that urinary catheter. But you're making sure any patient is stabilized. Um, you know, so certainly we're going to start with, you know, a, a, an excellent detailed physical exam. You know, we're typically going to be looking for some baseline blood work, CBC, blood chemistry, electrolytes. As we move through the case, you know, other things we're going to look for diagnostically are probably the urinalysis. We might run some rapid uh, screening tests for urinary tract obstruction. Uh, we might do 
focused ultrasound of the bladder. Uh, we will likely take at least survey radiographs to to document that we've you know placed a, a urinary catheter and that there aren't any uh, urolithiasis. So you know that's kind of the big overview. And you know I think you know you bring up a great point that these cases are often either one of two categories, right? They're either you know this really spry, bright, active cat who is uncomfortable, painful, and doesn't want to be there. Or it is the flat-out lateral near-death cat, and all of the things I just said we're gonna do for either cat. You know, I think that there are some things that, depending on what data I have, what physical exam findings I have, what drugs I have available, will change. But you know, you have to have the same foundation. So for that cat, let's say that we have you know, managed to, you know, get some blood work on that cat, you know, certainly, you know, starting with, with some type of opioid, you know, might, might quiet that cat. Buprenorphine in general is not going to have a lot of sedative properties in kitties. Um, so that's not usually something I'll reach for, you know, full mu agonist, like some methadone or maybe, you know, some hydromorphone might be a starting point. If this cat really has a very normal physical exam, you know, hasn't been vomiting at home, isn't lethargic, you know, has normal normal vital signs, you know, maybe just blocked, um, you know, that might be a case that I might consider adding in a little bit of an alpha-2 agonist, um, such as dexmedetomine with the cat. Um, I think, yeah. Controversy. Yeah. Well, I think it really just depends on, you know, how sick this cat is. This cat is a little bit fractious and, you know, or, or, or painful. I think, you know, a, a low dose of that is, is probably reasonable. Certainly, it's not a drug that I'm going to use for any of the sicker guys. But, now, you know, cats are hard to sedate, you know. So right? giving them, you know, a semi-fractious middle-aged cat just an opioid is probably not going to be enough. Adding in benzodiazepines is probably not going to be enough. Um, you could certainly try adding in a little bit of some subcure IML Faxil, and that might be an option. Or something like uh, maybe some midazolam and ketamine intermuscular might be another option. So those would be kind of the drugs that I, I might reach for, depending, now, you know, if I really thought the case was very, very stable. Let's say you did think it's stable. And let's say you yeah. you did want to add some dexmedetomidine to your methadone. When you say low dose, what dosage are you talking? So if I was giving, you know, methadone, probably, you know, I... I, I say commonly in cats is a pre-anesthetic dose, I tend to reach for right around 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 mg per kg, you know, as an initial dose. I don't always yeah. continue at that rate or that dose rather. And for dexmedetomidine, I, I kind of judge it based on the individual patient. So I'd probably say, probably start with somewhere between two and four micrograms per kilogram in that cat, um, where I want the cat to be uh, sedate, um, but but ideally perhaps not laterally recumbent in a deep sedation. But there might be some cats which were very you know difficult to work with, where maybe I would go a bit higher than that even. I'm a huge fan of the sacrococcygeal blocks for these guys. Sure. Um, are you ever utilizing that in your practice? I do. Um, not necessarily on every case. Uh, I think in more recent years, I, I'm using it more and more. And that's a great technique to use, but you obviously need to have a pretty immobile cat, right? So, right. you know, you don't want to be putting a needle in, you know, around called equina, or certainly if you're doing an epidural around the spinal cord, you know, in a cat who's moving. So, so that's an important factor in my decision to do that. You know, I, I need to have a cat immobilized, but uh, yeah, the, the, that's a great option. Usually the cane is what um, I'll reach for. 
um, you know, maybe around a, a 0.5 mg per kg dose um, uh, bupivacaine. That's one option. You could use other uh, local anesthetics like lidocaine or bupivacaine as well. Okay. So, yeah. So when we do when we do have those cats that come in that are pretty flat out, they're pretty right. far along in the process. Like, how does that change your anesthesia? Well, I think for any cat, as I start getting you know more data back, you know, some of the things I'm going to be looking for is what is the patient's heart rate on exam? What is the level of consciousness? Are they are they already quite depressed? Have they been vomiting? Are they dehydrated? Do I think that they're hemodynamically stable? You know, how painful are they? You know, once I get some blood work back, you know, I'm going to be paying uh, special attention to whether there is a metabolic acidemia, whether there is a hyperkalemia. Do I think that this patient is hypovolemic? What are their renal values? Um, what are other electrolytes? And there's other, there are other problems in this patient. Does it have heart disease? Um, does it have liver disease, et cetera? So that's really where I start looking at those things. And I think most of the cats, many, at least a large portion of the cats we see are actually quite sick coming in the door. And those cats need stabilization. And so, you know, they need an IV catheter placed. Um, they need some volume resuscitation. So, you know, a, a fluid such as lactated ringers is usually a good choice. I'll often start a fluid bolus. These patients often haven't been eating, maybe vomiting. A lot of times the hypovolemia associated with that is definitely, you know, an issue. Um, so I'll often start with a fluid bolus and that will also help to lower potassium if it is high. Um, so along with that, if I find that the patient's hyperkalemic, I'm usually going to start with a, a slow injection of IV calcium gluconate or boroglucanate. And I'm usually going to give that at a, at a dose of uh, 50 mgs per kg, slowly watching an electrocardiogram over probably about five minutes, slowing down if my patient is getting bradycardic. So I'm going to usually give that in patients that have a potassium, say, greater than seven. Okay. So, you know, if I have a, let's say I have a cat who has a potassium 11 or 12, I'm likely first going to give some calcium. That's not going to change the cat serum potassium, but what it's going to do is it's going to help protect the heart. Um, I had a cat just uh, just a week or two ago that was in ventricular tachycardia, was hyperkalemic, and uh, we, for whatever reason, didn't get the lights back uh, until after we'd already given it some medication and realized it was quite hyperkalemic and went into VTAC, and, and that was the yeah. first thing that I did. I gave it some IV calcium, and that immediately abolished uh, that arrhythmia. So some other things that I might do besides fluid therapy, addressing calcium, I'm going to typically give some IV uh, regular insulin and 50% dextrose um, for hyperkalemia. That's going to shift potassium into the cells. Um, so that's going to give me a pretty immediate and effective uh, way to reduce potassium. Um, okay. So those are kind of some of the first things that, that I, I would reach for to stabilize this cat more, probably looking at an electrocardiogram. Yeah. On that, um, you know, not necessarily anesthesia or pain management related, but I'll get there in a second. If you just, if you did not give the insulin and we just gave some dextrose to try to start up the patient's own endogenous insulin, I know that I've been in some clinics that will go that route. Is there really a difference? Was one better than the other? I don't know that in veterinary medicine we've studied that. That's not usually a technique that's used in people. Where that's come from, I, I don't really know. I, I think that there's a lot of personal opinion on that. My opinion and, and those I've trained under usually has been that dextrose alone is not effective enough. 
Um, you don't get enough of an insulin surge to really change potassium. I, I don't know that I have data to say that that's true or not, but certainly kind of following what's been more published in the human literature, I, I would reach personally for the insulin and the dextroses together. Um, I think that's, you know, tried and true. And I think probably what most criticalists reach for. But again, there might be some people who have different you know, opinions on that. I don't think it's wrong, but I think if you're trying to give an emergency therapy, you want it to be as effective as possible. You know, other things that you could consider, some people will sometimes give sodium bicarbonate if they have a, a really significant metabolic acidemia. I think we, we generally don't do that as much because usually their acid-based status improves quickly with fluid therapy and unblocking. Other things you could consider are drugs like terbutaline. That also, the beta agonists will will also work um, for or albuterol. You know, you could give a puff or two of albuterol, also uh, lower potassium. So those are some of the drugs, you know, that I'm giving after fluid therapy or concurrently with fluid therapy. And only after I've given these stabilization techniques am I then considering about unblocking the CAD. You know, if I'm trying to, for whatever reason, buy myself more time, it's not uncommon to do decompressive cystocentesis. I think, you know, people back in the day used to be very concerned about rupturing bladders. By doing that, we, we have a couple good papers now that show that that probably doesn't happen, or if it does happen, it was probably going to happen either way. So it, it's not uncommon for me to, in, in that recumbent cat, start some fluids, start some calcium, start some, you know, insulin dextrose, be giving some pain medication, doing a decompressive cystocentesis, getting that patient more stable before I, I give it further drugs. Can you, and when you say you're giving, you know, for this really critical one, you're giving some pain management, you're referring yeah. to opioids, correct? Yeah, okay. great question. So, I mean, to me, when I think of drugs that we give in the acute pain setting, you know, the most effective drug classes are usually going to be opioids, NSAIDs, and local anesthetics. If I have a patient who has had maybe dehydrated, maybe hypovolemic, maybe a little shocky, may have poor renal perfusion, may already have an acute kidney injury, I'm generally not going to be reaching for an NSAID um, at this time. I might use one later or in a, a stable cat with feline lower urinary tract disease but not for this case. So yes, opioids in general, I'm going to start with full new agonists personally. Again, as I said earlier, you know, buprenorphine is a great drug in cats, but it generally is not particularly sedating. We tend to underdose the, the drug as well. And so for me, that's just not enough for unblocking a cat personally. Um, mm -hmm. And yes, I, I often will, you know, utilize a, a sacrococcygeal, you know, nerve block. I, I, occasionally I might do an epidural. So, so yeah, local anesthetics and opioids are typically the drugs I'm going to be reaching for in these cases first. Yeah. Okay. And then let's say we move further along in these cases. Are you usually intubating these cases or are they on like flow by oxygen? I think it depends on the case. And I think it depends on a couple factors. I think if there is a cat that I, I think that is going to be unblocked fairly easily, more times than not, um, what I will do is I will provide full monitoring, designated anesthetist. I will give that cat, most commonly I usually reach for alfaxalone, so I'll often give them kind of a two-ish, two to maybe four mg per kg dose of alfaxalone slowly IV after an opioid. And as soon as that cat is essentially immobile, they might be pretty lightly anesthetized, um, then I will put the cat on its back for unblocking. And I will always have the cat on oxygen. I will have it blood pressure, electrocardiogram, pulse ox, temperature, 
if I have a case that I think is going to, so, so alfaxalone, you know, is often an induction agent I reach for in these cases. And I usually will do a, a total intravenous anesthesia with alfaxalone where I just titrate a little bit further um, alfaxalone as needed, or I put them on a syringe pump as a constant rate infusion. I think okay. other induction, you know, options could be, you know, ketamine and midazolam or diazepam. Occasionally in really sick cases that I need to have very immobile, I might do midazolam, diazepam, one of those two to atomidate. Um, those are kind of my most common drug choices, certainly avoiding, you know, drugs like dexmedetomidine or acepromazine or probably even propofol for our really sick guys. Um, certainly not doing anything like a mask or, or chamber induction with an inhalant. And then ultimately, if I think that the case is going to not unblock easily, where there are other factors like, you know, maybe the cat has bladder stones, I, th I think that there's going to be further work we need to do, then I'll often, you know, intubate them and put them on an inhalant. But I would say for probably the majority of cases, I'm going to usually either, I'm usually not going to intubate them. Um, and there's, there's debate with that. Some people certainly do. It's never wrong to provide airway support. I mean, I love hearing how like everybody else does like things just a titch differently. But right. again, I like hearing from the, the experts and the people with a lot of letters after their name to make sure that we're, you know, doing the best we can to provide good patient care. We are at time and uh, we've gotten so much good information and hopefully everybody listening feels a little more confident going forward what to look for in their urethral obstruction cases. Um, and I want to thank you, Dr. Norkis, so much for being on the podcast today and giving us all this great knowledge. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun.